following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another one of our AUA University podcasts, with this podcast specifically being titled Novel Imaging for Genitourinary Cancers. My guest today is Dr. Mark Berlin. Dr. Berlin is Associate Professor of Urology and Director of Clinical Trials at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, Mark, first of all, thank you so much, uh, really, for joining, and, and obviously in advance uh, for your time and expertise on this podcast. Absolutely, a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. No, that's great, uh, and you know, for our listeners, um, Dr. Berlin uh, actually uh, teaches uh, one of our uh, courses at the annual meeting um, in the whole space of, of um, you know nuclear medicine-based imaging. And so I would certainly tell you that uh, for any of you that are interested, uh, he and his team will be having a course at the AUA annual meeting uh, in May of 2023. Um, this, this podcast is structured a little bit like a potpourri. So um, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Berlin about some of the different diseases that we treat, prostate cancer, kidney cancer, urothelial cancer. And, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what type of PET imaging is available, as well as <clears throat> um, uh, clinical trials or, or perhaps some of the data uh, underlying the use. So, Mark, if you're good, may, maybe we'll just start off with, um, we'll start off with prostate cancer, if that's okay with you. And, and maybe I'll just sort of start picking your brain and then, and then have you sort of weigh in on, on some of the uh, concepts. Does that sound reasonable? Absolutely. Love it. So maybe, you know, when we talk about um, PET-based imaging for prostate cancer, um, maybe even before we, we look at the, the actual sort of, you know, what scenarios do we use it in, can, can you give us a little bit of a perspective? We've kind of gone through this evolution uh, for a, a good amount of time. We, we really didn't have very good PET-based imaging for prostate cancer. Um, and then obviously we've now had this evolution <clears throat> over a number of years um, certainly with flucyclovine, and, and now most recently with PSMA-based and even the different types of PSMA-based PET imaging. Maybe just walk us through um, maybe, you know, the evolution and, and realistically now in clinical practice, what would we be using and seeing um, in day-to-day -day use? Yeah, I think that really sets the stage. You know, historically in, in men with has, that have a disease risk stratification that be at, may be at risk for either locally advanced or metastatic prostate cancer, we conventionally get a contrast-enhanced CAT scan to look at any, you know, regional or distant 
metastases in combination with a bone scan. These types of imaging tests are readily available. They're, they're relatively cheap and easily accessible. But, you know, through, through years of research, we've found out that there can be some false negatives, some false positive, and some indeterminate, you know, assessments using these tools. And as a result, pet imaging has moved into this uh, kind of disease stage. And when we talk about pet imaging, just to kind of clarify to some of the listeners that typically a, a pet uh, imaging modality is acquired in combination with a CT scan. So the, the pet imaging uses a, a radio pharmaceutical agent that binds to or is taken up in some type of target is, uh, tissue of interest. And this really looks at function. And then it's overlaid on top of a CAT scan that gives us anatomical detail. And as you mentioned, fluciclovine, the, the Axiomen scan uh, came up, you know, maybe almost 10 years ago, and we thought it was going to be novel and, and offer good performance characteristics to stage men with prostate cancer. But we found out it had several limitations. And as a result, there's been further work into other radio tracers. And lo and behold, PSMA, prostate-specific membrane antigen, has come to the forefront of this. And now there's been some exciting developments in terms of uh, clinical trials and FDA approval in this space. No, that's great. No, that's uh, I think you set the stage um, really well. And, and maybe um, even before perhaps we talk about maybe the clinical scenarios, maybe just with PSMA-based uh, PET imaging, talk to us a little bit about um, you know, maybe the gallium-based imaging and, and why that was sort of really wasn't widely adopted and, and maybe the, the differences with, with, you know, Polarify, for example, which, which obviously we are using more um, and, and what most of us will see in practice. Maybe I'll start with that and then we'll go through some of the clinical scenarios of use. Yeah. So a, a number of kind of imaging agents have, have been used in, in, the, in the CAT scanning space. And there's been a whole lot of heterogeneity in terms of trying to determine what is a positive finding and what is a negative finding to, to stage men with prostate cancer in terms of lymph node morphology, you know, fatty hilum sizes, and the criteria are kind of, kind of a little bit gray as well as the interpretation. And as a result, uh, you can imagine that a lot of the data we get from these imaging tests are a little bit indeterminate, which kind of push towards finding a, a better radio tracer or a better imaging modality. So what, um, when we specifically look at sort of PSMA-based imaging, what are some of the clinical scenarios that we should be using these or considering uh, use in practice? Yeah, great question. So there was a really kind of unique collaborative that came out uh, in the last couple of years, which was a PSMM, PSMA appropriate use criteria article that had a group of multidisciplinary panel specialists in prostate cancer, including the Society of Nuclear Medicine Molecular Imaging, representatives from the American College of Nuclear Medicine, American College of Physicians, ASCO representatives were on this paper. AUA had a strong representation in this paper, as well as Australian, New Zealand, and European nuclear medicine uh, specialists. And what they essentially did in this article is came up with 
11 clinical scenarios that documented the appropriateness of using PSMA in different clinical scenarios. And in order to score each clinical scenario, they gave a, a scoring system of one to nine, one being the least appropriate and nine being the most appropriate. And then essentially there were five clinical scenarios that were scored seven through nine, which is considered appropriate use. So uh, happy to touch base on some of those scenarios if okay by you. Yeah. So why don't we talk about uh, some of those having, you sort of set the stage very nicely for, you know, what is, how you define appropriate use. So what, what are some of these scenarios uh, that you mentioned? So, so the group kind of quantified them into uh, initial staging, um, biochemical recurrence, and then some uh, castration resistant uh, uh, stages. But in terms of initial staging, uh, the group came up with two appropriate scenarios. And this is for, you know, men with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. And the first scenario they define is uh, the appropriate use of PSMA is for newly diagnosed, unfavorable, intermediate, high risk, and very high risk prostate cancer. And they gave that a score of eight. So you're saying if you see one of these men in your clinic, it would be appropriate to then get a PSMA PET to further stage their workup. And there has been some clinical trial data in this space supporting this use and that PSMA PET has been shown to be more accurate than conventional imaging, especially in these high-risk men. It results in fewer equivocal imaging tests, lower radiation exposure, and ultimately greater impact on treatment. There was one other clinical scenario in initial staging um, index patient that this group has mentioned, and that is newly diagnosed, unfavorable intermediate high risk or very high risk cancer with a negative or an equivocal oligometastatic workup on conventional imaging, meaning that someone may have nodes, we're not quite sure if they're positive, not quite sure if they're negative, and this would be appropriate man to get a PSMA PET on. And the clinical dry, uh, data does support that in these men with possible oligometastatic disease, that this PSMA PET may actually shift them over to polymetastatic disease. Mm. And as a result, you can imagine their clinical management would significantly change if that's the case. So certainly, as you alluded to, we, we now have several indications in the newly diagnosed setting. And you outlined, I think, very nicely um, those different clinical scenarios based upon the risk strata for the patient, or as you mentioned, prior imaging that may that may suggest the presence of, of metastatic disease. What about um, scenarios after primary therapy, whether that be surgery or, or radiotherapy? Yeah, so the group gave, gave two uh, appropriate scores in the biochemically recurrent uh, scenario. The first was in men who have a PSA rise or a persistent PSA uh, from an undetectable level after radical prostatectomy. And this got a score of nine, which again is an appropriate use for PSMA PET imaging. And there's kind of this million dollar question as to what level PSA should you then get the, the PSMA PET scan? And the group actually was careful in their wording and that even though there was debate about 
whether a PSA threshold should be used to determine at which time the man should undergo a PSMA PET, it was decided that there should be no defined uh, level. So essentially the take home message is don't wait until you think the PSMA is going to be positive. When you see that PSA start trending up, it would be appropriate to go ahead and get it. I was going to so say, Mark, so that let me just ask you practically just in that setting, um, mm -hmm. in your practice, um, let's say you, you, you do a radical prostatectomy on somebody and I don't know, a year or two later, their PSA is point. One point one five point two. Um, obviously, the higher this number goes, the higher the likelihood that your PET-based imaging will be reliable. That being said, the higher the number goes, the less potentially successful your salvage therapies, such as radiotherapy, are. So, in your own practice, even though the the sort of the the panel didn't pick a certain threshold, is there a certain value that you sort of use in your practice as your sort of threshold for ordering or does it really just vary patient to patient? I guess I would worry about ordering a test so soon that it doesn't give me a yield because I've picked up the disease too early in the process to see it on imaging. Your thoughts on that sort of thought process? Yeah, I, I, have, I struggle with the exact same scenario in clinical practice. And then the other kind of caveat, unfortunately, we have to think like this, but if you get it too early, is it still available, you know, through the insurance authorization to get it subsequent six right, months right, later right. as you need? So typically in my practice, I will try to trend at least a couple PSAs to say, all right, it truly looks like this is a, this is an increase and a significant increase. And at that time, it's really kind of clinical judgment. And I'm, I would go ahead and get it. But I typically, you know, after learning more about this and reading in detail, uh, I, I tend to err on the earlier side than than waiting until it's significantly higher. Great. And now what about um, after radiotherapy? What, what, what are sort of the, the thresholds to use at that juncture? So similar kind of definitions the group gave and that uh, the clinical use scenario is appropriate when there is a PSA rise above the nadir after definitive radiotherapy. And uh, again, the group uh, avoided giving a threshold at which point uh, that is the case. But again, clinical judgment when the PSA starts to rise uh, after a man who's been treated with radiotherapy, that it would be appropriate to get a PSMA PET. And then maybe the final scenario, I think you alluded to it briefly, was the the setting of castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And and are these you know M zero patients who who have sort of normal conventional imaging, or are we talking about maybe M one patients to better define the burden of their disease that may not be wholly captured by conventional imaging? Yeah, very insightful. The, the uh, authors did specify specifically that it's appropriate for non-metastatic castrate-resistant men who have M0 on conventional imaging, but there is a well-cited study that when you do get a PSMA PET on a man with non, what you think is non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, about half the time the PSMA PET will find M1 disease, which you can imagine then would significantly change our our management strategy, but th but that clinical scenario was also given a appropriate use score um, to get a PSMA PET for that man. And then maybe just sort of final question in this space, and, and then any other thoughts you have is, um, it seems like this PSMA based PET imaging is 
is sort of setting the stage for this whole concept of theranostics that that we're identifying these lesions and therefore perhaps then can develop uh, deliver more targeted you know radiotherapy with lutetium or whatever agent of, of choice. Um, do you think that that's you know I know some early work is done there. Do, do you think we're sort of on the cusp of that being integrated into clinical practice more? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the theranostics is is definitely coming down the pipeline. There's been some interesting, you know, promising studies that have have been positive in that space, and I really think that kind of imaging directed, molecular directed treatment is going to be our next step in managing patients with metastatic prostate cancer. Great. Um, I was going to maybe change our focus, unless you had anything else. I was going to maybe change our focus towards maybe kidney. And, and just talk about that. Does that sound sound okay from your end? Yep, let's do it. So um, talk, talk to us a little bit about um, with regards to kidney pathology and, and, and sort of renal masses, um, the Sestamibi scan, what, what is it? How does it work? And what is its, how does it fit into clinical practice? How do we use it or how are we supposed to use it? And what does it differentiate? Yeah, so Sestamibi is actually a lipophilic cationic mitochondrial imaging agent that is previously widespread used in the myocardial and parathyroid imaging space. And how it works is that the technetium labeled Sestamibi accumulates in cells with really high mitochondrial content and low what's called multi-drug resistant pump expression. So different histologies of kidney masses have either high mitochondrial expression um, and low drug resistance um, pump expression or vice versa. And as a result, the uptake of this tracer can then help uh, hmm. discriminate between a benign oncocytoma or a, for example, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And, and so is that the major, so the major distinguishing point is really potentially the identification of oncocytomas or oncocytic lesions. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's a significant increase in mitochondrial and a decrease in that multidrug resistant pump expression, which are classically characteristic of renal oncocytomas. And then on the flip side, clear cell renal cell carcinomas have the opposite. They're essentially devoid of mitochondrial and have a very high multidrug resistant pump expression. So you can hopefully separate out oncocytomas from a more aggressive renal cell carcinoma based on a Sestamibi scan. And then there's varying amounts of mitochondria, but a relatively high multidrug uh, resistant activity in other renal cell carcinoma subtypes. So the, the goal is really to discern benign tumors from malignant tumors based on this imaging test. And and so based on what you're saying, so it seems like the, the test has the ability to discriminate, as you alluded to, maybe more biologically aggressive kidney cancer, like clear cell subtype versus oncocytoma. How, how does this sort of, um, the, that, that, that spread between an oncocytoma and maybe a chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, you know, things that I think about maybe are are, you know, first cousins of each other, you know, more indolent kidney cancers um, and maybe histologically fairly closely related. How, how does this test work with, with maybe distinguishing or differentiating or, or, or can it, or is that one of the weaknesses of the test? 
Yeah, I definitely think that is one of kind of that indeterminate uh, spaces, the limitations of the uh, imaging. The, some of the original studies done by Mike Gorn's group, you know, looked at 50 patients with solitary renal masses who all got a cestimetomy scan prior to their surgery, and they had a sensitivity of about 87.5%, specificity about 95% for the diagnosis of renal oncocytomas, but that also included those tumors you just mentioned, hybrid oncocytic tumors, chromophobe tumors, and there were a couple of pulse positives. Uh, two out of the 50 did have eosinophilic variants of chromophobe renal cell carcinoma. So by no means is it a perfect imaging test, and some of those less aggressive ones may actually uh, come up as a false positive. And, and maybe just to finish um, the, the, the thought on this, maybe two questions. First is, what is the, the body of evidence or, or the literature? Is this, is this fairly robust that uh, these SESTAMIBI scans uh, are used and have been published on in the literature? Uh, where, where are we sort of in this whole sort of adoption, if you want to talk about adoption curves, right? Are we, are we on our way or, or is this more in the, the early phases based upon the existing data? Yeah, I, I think we are in the earlier adopters for this imaging test, mainly academic centers. Uh, the, the first study I you know, cited was 50 patients. Uh, it's been since externally validated on a much larger um, cohort, but I must express in my own opinion, I've had some challenges in uh, repeating some of the results that have been published. Uh, I've spoken to some of the expert groups on, hey, I'm not quite dealing any to get the, the specificity and sensitivity you are. What pointers can you give me? And I think they, they have hinted a lot of it is in the nuclear medicine interpretation of the imaging. Mm. And there's a bit of a learning curve in that. And maybe perhaps when it's more kind of ubiquitously understood in the in the imaging modality, that perhaps it'll move along in the, in the adoption curve a little bit more. You know, it's interesting when you say that because I feel like we we see this in in you know the life cycle of many of our imaging studies that we use. You know, you think about maybe the earlier days of of um, prostate cancer and MRI and PIRADS assessments and you know some of the the analyses that you know when you're at centers that have a very focused experience. Obviously, the performance characteristics and the diagnostic accuracy. Are, are greater than when you see it out in the general population. And you wonder if a lot of this is similar sort of learning curve, interpretation of studies and getting enough volume that your, your interpretations are consistent. And it seems like this is sort of similar in that same, in that same thread. Yeah, I would always say, I agree with that entirely, that there is gonna be kind of an experience adoption to this, this imaging modality. So we, we talked a little bit about, you know, maybe the, the benign tumors of the kidney um, oncocytoma, the more indolent lesions. What sort of nuclear medicine-based imaging do we have when we're looking at um, maybe the more aggressive kinds of kidney cancer, uh, you know, the clear cell variants, those that, um, you know, really do have a, a significant potential uh, for metastasis, both, you know, at time of presentation or, or, you know, further down the line. What tools do we have in that space? Yeah, so the, the, the timing of this podcast is quite serendipitous because there is a this uh, humanized monoclonal antibody that binds to the carbonic anhydrase 9 called gerontuximab. And it's been studied, and actually this week 
data from their phase three trial was actually released. But essentially under normal physiologic conditions, this CA9 is upregulated in hypoxic conditions and it serves to catalyze the reversible hydration of carbonic, or excuse me, carbon dioxide. And as a result, the CA9 is overexpressed in 95% of clear cell renal cell carcinomas. So the goal of this, this agent is really to identify those aggressive clear cell renal cell carcinomas. And gerontuximab, this monoclonal antibody, can be labeled with a different number of radionucleotides. Uh, iodine has been looked at, iodine-124 labeled to gerontuximab. PET scan, there's initial data on 26 patients that came out with a quite high sensitivity of 94%. And then there was some uh, work that kind of uh, validated that, that finding in the REDECT trial. And after this trial came out and said, you know what, this seems to be working quite well to identify renal cell carcinoma, that there is thoughts about taking this to the, to the FDA to get approval. And the FDA said, well, we need a larger study. So a second multi-center study of, of 30 different sites worldwide, internationally, uh, looked at gerontuximab. And actually, they was radio-labeled to zirconium rather than iodine because there's some thought that zirconium-labeled uh, gerontuximab has higher uptake and higher retention and therefore more sensitive to renal cell carcinoma. But yeah, just this week, that phase three trial uh, released their data and um, they delivered on several endpoints. So they found an 86% sensitivity and an 87% specificity, 93% positive predictive value of identifying clear cell renal cell carcinoma using this PET imaging. So very promising data in this space. Um, and again, it's probably on the early adoption curve, but uh, zirconium labeled gerontuximab is definitely coming down the pipeline. And, and those performance characteristics that you just talked about, was that performance characteristics with respect to the primary lesion or, or was this for, for sites of disease outside of the kidney? Yeah. So this is identifying the histology subtype of the primary lesion. So it seems like we now may have a, a second tool that identifies almost the other end of the spectrum, right? The cestamibes we've been talking about thus far is the indolin uh, oncocytomas, or maybe even that, that maybe the hybrid oncocytoma chromophobe. And now you've got something which really identifies, you know, I, I think the biologic uh, aggressive actor uh, here. Mm -hmm. And one wonders over time um, how, how the, the concept of, you know, renal mass biopsy has, has been advocated in many scenarios, but obviously, although it's overall a safe procedure, there is some risk, right? There is always mm -hmm. some risk. And you wonder as we get more of these tools, how much uh, these refined imaging may potentially obviate if the performance characteristics are good enough, maybe obviate some of these biopsy procedures down the line. Yeah, definitely. This would be kind of next level non-invasiveness to characterize the type of renal mass uh, that patients may have. We should probably even mention some limitations of it just because we're on the topic that, you know, for the gerontuximab, it, it floats around in the bloodstream for quite a while. So patients often have to get it injected five to seven days in advance of their imaging test. Hmm. Uh, so keep that in mind. While the, the sestamibi can be done 75 minutes after the injection. So in an ideal world, you could probably consider doing 
uh, dual labeled radio tracer where you can put both of them on there. It's just that you'd have to work through the timing on, on after the radio tracer is given, when can you actually scan a patient to get the useful information you want? Sure. So let's pivot now and let, let's sort of maybe finish our last disease space that, that we work on a lot as, as uh, urologic clinicians, which is urothelial cancer. And um, maybe first talk to us a little bit about um, what types of uh, radio tracer do we use for urothelial cancer? And then maybe we'll start with that and then talk a little bit about performance characteristics and then what clinical scenario. So what do we use here when we, uh, for, for urothelial cancer? Yeah, so conventionally the radio tracer is FDG, which is good at picking up distant metastatic disease and it's good at identifying some lymph nodes but one of the main concerns of using an FDG radio tracer is that it pools in the urinary tract system, meaning that the collecting system ureters and the bladder all light up super bright, super avid on the PET scan. And as a result, it can't be used reliably to stage the primary disease. You can't determine if someone has T2, T3 disease, but it may be an adjunct in combination with, with CAT scanning to identify lymph nodes or, or distant disease. Uh, there is some, some work done in the space of choline radio tracers. One of the drawbacks of the choline radio tracer, however, is it's very short half-life, meaning that if you're going to use it, you have to have essentially a cyclotron, a device to make the, that radio tracer on your site because it, it can't be made and then shipped across country because it simply it, it, the, the half-life is too short. But those are kind of the main two in study, um, both with some limitations. And as a result, they are not yet endorsed in national guidelines as the, the, the imaging modality for, for bladder cancer staging. So just to, to dovetail on that point, so um, what would be the clinical scenarios, ideally, um, that, that these may be used in primary, like at diagnosis or, or in a surveillance setting or to monitor sort of treatment to systemic therapies? Where, where would we use this for urothelial cancer? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a few that's most uh, useful. The NCCN and the American College of Radiology give specific guidelines on muscle invasive and metastatic bladder cancer pre-treatment. So those patients who you think may have at least T2 disease, or if you think it's going to change their management to T3 disease, this would be a reasonable test to uh, get. The American College of Radiology isn't quite as stringent in their recommendations. It says it may improve some sensitivity of nodal detection. Uh, there is some increasing evidence that it may outperform contrasted CT scan, uh, but a lot of maybes. And then the second is really post-treatment surveillance, meaning that uh, in men who have already, or no, I shouldn't say men, in our patients in general who have already been treated, you can look for recurrent disease or anything that's equivocal on uh, conventional imaging after treatment. And then probably the involving space is if you can identify patients during neoadjuvant chemotherapy who would benefit from completing chemotherapy versus those that you can identify as an early non-responder and say, hey, you've gotten two cycles of chemotherapy. It doesn't appear that it's getting us to where we should be. Skip the, the other two cycles, go straight to surgery. 
or if you're getting a great response, complete the chemotherapy and then move on to surgery. All still to be determined, but I think uh, treatment response is really going to be the next space uh, that radio tracers are going to help uh, manage bladder cancer. And what kind of data do we have just on um, performance characteristics compared to conventional imaging with CT or MRI? Is there any data yet or, or, or is that still fairly, does that need to mature? It's rather ironic that um, I think it's evolving. And, and when I say that is I've been preparation for this podcast. I was actually redoing a little bit of reading to, to just refresh my, my memory. And there was a very good review paper that came out in a urology journal on this exact topic. And there was a very good uh, review paper out in a nuclear medicine journal on this topic. This just as essentially comparing FDG PET scans with contrasted CAT scans, which is better, which should mm -hmm. we be doing? And the urology journal said uh, no uh, improved performance over contrasted CAT scan for the NukeMed uh, PET scan. And the NukeMed journal said, by all means, a FDG PET outperforms contrast <laughs> imaging. And this was published within weeks of each other using the same data. So <laughs> I think really the take-home message is that there's a number of limitations so far in this imaging space, including the heterogeneity of the methods used for the studies, uh, the study design, the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, the administration of neoadjuvant chemo, the injection acquisition time to the PET, you know, whether the, the abnormality on PET imaging is confirmed by pathologic biopsy. So a lot of limitations so far in the literature, but hopefully uh, further study groups will kind of push the understanding of this PET agent and hopefully uh, it'll improve the care of our bladder cancer patients. And then maybe the last question I'd have for you in this urothelial <clears throat> space is, you know, as you well know, um, immune checkpoint inhibition has really uh, moved to the forefront with a lot of our systemic therapies. And, um, and, and a lot of these are predicated on expression uh, of, of uh, you know, whether it's PD-1, PD-L1, but expression profiles um, on these tumors, and, and that may be able to help us gauge response. Do we have any tools that, that may be there to help us sort of assess this? Yeah, there are a couple of uh, studies in their infancy looking at zirconium labeled uh, PDL1 radio tracers to look at specific response in disease processes that are treated with PDL1 inhibitors. Uh, the data is very immature, but it is very promising. And I would suspect that we'll be definitely seeing a lot more of that type of investigations coming down the pipeline in this disease space. Well, that's great. Well, Mark, I, I really want to thank you. You sort of took us in a very cogent manner through sort of all the different diseases. And uh, I, I think it was really an outstanding summary of, of sort of what we have available and, and obviously some of the strengths and weaknesses across these settings. So, Mark, first of all, thank you so much for, for taking some time today to, to do this podcast. Pleasure. It's been a great time. Thank you so much again for the invitation. And for our listeners, uh, thank you again for joining us. If you uh, would like any other information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org university. And as I mentioned, Dr. Berlin does have uh, an entire course at the annual meeting. And uh, please, I encourage you, if any of this content you found to be interesting, uh, you'll get to see him uh, live and in person uh, in Chicago. And, and you can pick his brain actively at that point. Mark, have a great day. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
All right. Thank you again.